Welcome to the weekly podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. It is good to have you with me. I am Peter Melanowski, clinical psychologist, and this podcast is part of our online outreach with Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com. Soulsandhearts.com and this podcast is all about your human formation, all about shoring up your natural foundation for a solid Catholic spiritual life. This is episode 66. We are talking about acceptance versus endorsement, a critical difference in Catholic marriages. We are in the middle of a series on sexuality and Catholic marriages, but there is so much in this episode. I'm so excited to share it with you. There's so much in this episode that's relevant for all kinds of close relationships. Now, a quick review. Where have we been? Let's review the Catholic canopied marriage bed. That represents the sexual life of a married Catholic couple. And we started with the floor, and I can't emphasize this enough. The floor is the presence of God and a firm, unwavering belief in his providence. Everything begins with that solid foundation. This is the most fundamental piece of the whole metaphor. We need to be in contact with the I am of God, who is the source of all reality. We can't forget that. Then we have the four legs. Leg one, the husband's commitment to his own interior integration, to his own human formation. Leg two, the wife's commitment to her own interior integration, her own human formation. Leg three, understanding attachment needs, understanding integrity needs. Leg four, internal family systems approaches. We talked a lot about this in episode 60, which was entitled, How Well Do You Really Know Your Spouse? A great episode, if I do say so myself. That one you might want to review because in that episode, I made five bold assertions. I said that you don't really know your spouse. Your spouse doesn't really know you. Your father doesn't or didn't really know your mother. Your mother doesn't or didn't really know your father. And you really don't know you. I gave evidence for all those bold claims in episode 60. I'm not going to repeat it all here. You can go back to episode 60 and listen to them again. But for those of you listeners who are married, think about it, right? It can seem like your spouse has widely varying modes of operating. Like they can even be different people when they are in these different modes of operating these different modes of being. Remember what your spouse or someone close to you is like when they are in these different states, like when they're really angry or when they're really sad or when they're really anxious or when they're really joyful or happy, how differently they think, how their worldview changes, how their desires change, how their body states change, their body language. This is evidence for what we call parts, and parts are constellations of emotions, body sensations, thoughts, feelings, impulses, assumptions about the world. So many other things go into these, but these parts are central to internal family systems thinking, and that kind of thinking helps us to make sense of our own internal experience, and not just our own internal experience, but the internal experience of other people. It helps us to break out of the model that we have just one monolithic, homogenous personality. I just don't think that captures anything like the dynamism of the human person. So that's what episodes 60 and 61 were all about. It was all about understanding and knowing. And this episode is all about accepting versus endorsing. So we're taking it to a whole nother level here. Now, just a kind of little wrap up on the review of understanding. 
It is remarkable how unintegrated, how incomplete, how fragmented, how distorted Catholic husbands and wives' internal object representations of each other are. Right. Well, what's that? What's an internal object representation, Dr. Peter? It's definition time with Dr. Peter. Internal objects. All right. Internal objects have their roots in Freud, actually, this all goes way back to Freud, but it was much more developed by a psychoanalyst named Melanie Klein. And I'm going to take out a lot of the jargon here because there's a very technical definitions for what internal objects are. But internal object representations are basically these mental representations that result from how we have taken others inside of us and viewed them. It's not necessarily all that similar to who the person actually is. It's how we construe the other person to be, which depends heavily on our subjectivity. It depends on our experiential history. It also depends on how we're experiencing ourselves. Moreover, these internal object representations may have some stability, but they're also very dynamic. They're going to change over time because we have different parts. Different parts have different internal representations, different internal object representations of our spouses. When we become dominated by a part, we can get into very two-dimensional or even one-dimensional perspectives on who our spouse really is. For example, if we're really disappointed, if we've really been hurt by our spouse, we can look at that spouse as the person who has failed to make me feel better about myself and who has shamed me. And that's all my spouse is in that moment when I'm all worked up and I've received a cutting criticism or some kind of wound in, from my spouse that's activated all kinds of stuff from my childhood. We can look at our spouses in very two-dimensional or even one-dimensional ways. There is so much that Catholic husbands and wives do not see in each other that they do not know about one another. I just wanted to review that quickly. Three of these four legs are really helpful in accepting what the actual realities are inside your spouse. All right, that is the your own commitment to your human formation, that's understanding attachment needs and integrity needs, and that's understanding internal family systems. The fourth one, which is your spouse's commitment to human formation that you don't have direct control over. You may not have any control over that at all. It's great to have, but it's actually not essential. And oftentimes that's what spouses demand first. They want that leg first. I want you to do your human formation, your self-awareness, your interior integration. I want you to do that first. Sometimes the spouse just can't. And sometimes the spouse won't. We don't always know the difference, right? We may have assumptions about that, but we really don't know other people's souls. The frame in the box spring, that's the firm, unwavering commitment of the husband to his marriage vows and the wife to her marriage vows. That happens independently. It's not a conditional thing. I'll be committed if you're committed. Nope, nope, nope. Our own commitment. The mattress, that's the empathetic attunement. We covered that in episode 65. That was the last last episode. How do we tune into our spouses? And today we're talking about the two pillows. This is self-acceptance and spouse acceptance. That's what we're focused on today. Now, pillows support us. They comfort us. My wife travels with her pillow. She learned this from her college friend, Cabrina. There's comfort. There's security in having your own pillow when you're traveling on the road. 
There's comfort in being accepted as a person by someone who knows you and who loves you. The bottom sheet or the fitted sheet, that's the sexual attraction. That's the intensity of the sexual passions. We'll be getting into that next week. The top sheet is communication between the spouses. The blankets are the human warmth and the emotional connection. And the four bedposts are the mindset, heart set, body set, and soul set. That leaves us with the canopy and the curtains to protect privacy and propriety or possibly to hide dysfunction, exploitation, or even abuse in the marriage. And then the sham, the bedspread, and the bed skirt, these can be used to cover up the real bed and to give some sort of carefully curated impression of what the marriage is like to the external world. What are we talking about now, Dr. Peter? Well, we're going to talk about loving, and there's three elements in loving. Benevolence, capacity, and consistency. Benevolence, capacity, and consistency. We're going to be really focusing on capacity because we need to actually be able to accept, to be able to accept our spouse for who he or she is. And then we need to be willing, right? That's the benevolence. We need to be willing to accept our spouse as he or she is. And then we also need to do that consistently if we're going to love them by possessing the virtue of charity. Not only do we frequently not understand our spouses very well, but we also don't accept the realities about our spouses that we do understand, but that we just don't like, or that parts of us just seem to really have a hard time with. We also don't accept the realities that we could understand if we really allowed ourselves to see. But so often we have parts that don't want us to see who our spouses really are. And some of that's due to this confusion between acceptance and endorsement. So now I really want to get into some definitions that can help us feel better about accepting who our spouse really is without necessarily endorsing everything our spouse does or agreeing with everything that our spouse believes, right? So definitions here. We're going to go back to definition time with Dr. Peter. Acceptance. What is acceptance? Acceptance is acknowledging the reality of who I am in my entirety, all my parts with their burdens, all the roughness, the wounds, the disorder, the imperfections, all the baggage, all the quote stuff. It means admitting what's real. It means conceding all of the things that are really true about myself. It means coming to grips with that in a direct and honest way. That's acceptance. And I'm talking about the acceptance of the person. Right? When we accept our spouses, we're acknowledging the reality of who my spouse is. So in my case, my wife, Pam, I accept who she is in her entirety, in her complete being, with her parts, with her perspectives, with her virtues, with her vices, right at this moment. Acceptance, in the way that I'm using it, is about accepting the person. Endorsement, on the other hand, means essentially approving or embracing as good some feature within myself or my spouse. Right? So that means that we're saying, yes, that's good. I approve of that particular thing. So a husband can accept the reality that his wife is abusing painkillers without endorsing her misuse of that pain medication. 
Do you see the difference there? It's a really important distinction. We can accept without endorsing. Endorsing implies acceptance, but acceptance does not imply endorsement. Why do we struggle with accepting something about our spouse, even when we know we don't have to endorse it? Well, we have strong motivations within us to not see our spouses as they really are. We are strongly motivated by parts of us to not see the injuries, the deficiencies, the disorder, the areas of stunted development. We are highly motivated by some of our parts not to see how wounded our spouses really are. Because if we saw those things, these parts say of us, how would we get our needs met? These could be mommy needs, daddy needs that parts are hoping to get met from the marriage. These could be needs for God. Not going to happen. So many times these parts are looking for something in the marriage that they cannot have. And it can be very difficult for our parts to give up their illusions about the meaning and function of our spouse in our lives. Parts want to be redeemed. Parts want to be loved. Parts want to have hope that things are going to be better in the future, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And often, parts want to outsource the messy business of learning to accept ourselves and to love ourselves. We want to outsource that to somebody else to do that for us. And one candidate is our spouse. But no one can do that for us. No one can take our place in loving ourselves in an ordered way. So we have this tendency to idealize our spouses, to, to, to gloss over the things that really are issues. But when our parts get disappointed... There can be this flip side of idealization, which is devaluation. That's when the pendulum swings the other way and we see them in a really through gray colored glasses. We see them in this really negative way and with this really negative bias. So much of these processes are outside of our awareness. We could say it's unconscious. Parts of us often impel us. They invite us. They draw us toward various behaviors that are intended to get our needs met and parts have these good intentions, but often the means that they would use are very maladaptive. And when they do that, they tend to bring about the exact opposite of what they hope for. For example, when a part of us wants to make our spouse like God, the intention is often to find safety and security. But if We go along with that impulse that that part's bringing up. If we choose that impulse that that part's bringing up, we're not going to find that kind of safety and security. Only the real God can provide that. Our spouse is going to fail us. So if we go with that intention, if we go with that impulse to find safety and security in our spouse, instead of in God, we're going to wind up with that whole system breaking down. Often, there's no outside perspective, too. Very many Catholic marriages are very insular. They're very insulated. Nobody really knows what's going on inside of those marriages, including oftentimes the husband and the wife. But a lot of people don't even get a sense of what's happening that could be known because there's this idea that we don't air our dirty laundry, we don't share about what's happening in the marriage with other people. leads to a lot of silent suffering within marriages. Sometimes we're motivated by our own parts to stick our heads in the sand and not see our spouses like an ostrich. Okay, I looked up the ostrich thing and I suspected that maybe ostriches were getting a bad rap. And in reality, ostriches don't bury their head in the sand when they feel threatened. That's a myth. 
they make their nests in holes that they dig in the earth. And then the ostrich hen puts her head in the hole to turn the egg. So from a distance, it can look like the birds are burying their heads in the sand. That's our little zoological fact for today. Uh, but where were we? Uh, okay, yes. We were talking about how parts don't want us to see how our spouses really are because of the illusions that they would have to give up, because of the fantasies that they'd have to give up. So because the ostrich metaphor didn't work out, let's talk about monkeys instead. Let's talk about three monkeys, three monkeys named Nizaru, Kikazaru, and Iwazaru. These monkeys are about 400 years old. We're talking about some old monkeys here. Now, Mizaru is the one that has his hands over his eyes. Kikazaru is the one that has his hands over his ears, and Iwazaru is the one that has his hands over his mouth. The see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil monkeys. And from Wikipedia, it says, the source that popularized this pictorial maxim, that's the, that's the three monkeys, is a 17th century carving over a door of the famous Toshogu Shrine in Nikko, Japan. The carvings at Toshogu Shrine were carved by Hidaro Jingaro, they were believed to have incorporated Confucius's code of conduct using the monkey as a way to depict man's life cycle. All right, so he talks a little bit more about this. I think it's relevant because we often have parts that want us to do that, to see no evil in our spouse, to hear no evil. And sometimes we can be advised in our spiritual reading, for example, to not notice negative things or to gloss over it. But I think most of the time we're motivated by defensive self-protection. If I don't see it, if I don't hear it, then I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to acknowledge it. I don't have to address it. And that's where you get into denial and avoidance and withdrawal. And, you know, this can actually seem to have some support in Scripture in some ways too, right? When James in chapter 4 of his epistle in verses 11 to 12 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He that speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This kind of goes along with that idea that a lot of people think is in the Bible, but it actually isn't. But that's that if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Well, we can accept another person and we can know another person without judging the soul of another person. St. Paul says, I don't judge myself, right? He says that in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. So lots of misunderstanding about this. We know we're not supposed to judge other souls, which includes our spouse's souls. For one thing, we don't know our spouse's souls. Only God does. I often have to caution new therapists and sometimes therapists that I've, you know, that have been in the field for a long time who are doing work with a client who has high levels of dissatisfaction with that spouse. It can be really easy to get pulled into that spouse that client's parts view of the spouse, right? Often tempted to align with the client's parts against the spouse and actually start judging the soul of the spouse, judging motivations, judging all kinds of things that we can't really know. But we can and often we should judge behavior. 
A lot of times we have to judge another person's behavior. And Catholic theologian Edward Sri has this great book called Who Am I to Judge? Responding to Relativism with Logic and Love. This is an excellent book. I heard him present on it. Ted is a friend of mine. I, I don't recommend the book because he's a friend of mine. I recommend the book because the content is really clear. It's really excellent. I recommend that book. Who am I to judge? We can and often need to judge actions. And some actions of our spouses are obviously wrong and they're easily identifiable as bad. And we do not endorse them. We do not endorse them. Things like affairs, problematic drinking, drug use, sexual abuse, sexual abuse of the spouse, sexual abuse of children, violence, domestic violence, financial irresponsibility, gambling that imperils the family financing, compulsive shopping, all kinds of things that we can point to to say these behaviors are wrong. And we need to be able to say that. And those are obvious ones. But there's some that are also not very obvious. Sometimes so much is going on in very subtle ways. Gaslighting, various forms of psychological manipulation, subtle forms of abandonment that aren't physical abandonment, but it can be like emotional abandonment or psychological abandonment. Undermining, sabotaging, subtle shaming that often like rides below the threshold of conscious awareness. There's all kinds of ways that negative behaviors that should not be endorsed can slide under our awareness. So there needs to be limits and boundaries around these things. These are not things that should be endorsed. These are things though that we should accept about who our spouses are if they're actually happening. We want to not pretend that something's not happening. We don't want to be like those first two monkeys, Mizaru with our hands over our eyes or Kikazaru with our hands over our ears and not know. Now, whether we speak it or not depends on the context, right? We want to be thoughtful about that. There's also a lot of bad spiritual advice out, out about these sorts of things. I was just reading within the last week uh, a book by Father Tedush Doxer. I've mentioned this before. It's called The Gift of Faith. It's an excellent book overall. I'm really enjoying this book for spiritual reading. It's helping me out a ton. But man, there was a clunker on page 130. On page 130, he has this quote. Begin quote. Anxiety and sadness are always bad and always flow from self-love. End quote. Now, this has been probably the most nonsensical statement I've read in a spiritual book in some time. Now, I try not to read a lot of books that are nonsensical in the spiritual realm, but this is a real clunker, right? Anxiety and sadness are always bad and always flow from self-love. Let's compare that to the catechism. Catechism number 1769 in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit himself accomplishes his work by mobilizing the whole being with all its sorrows, fears, and sadness as is visible in the Lord's agony and passion. Yeah, Jesus was like us in all things but sin, says St. Paul, right? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, St. Mark tells us, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Luke, the physician, goes and describes how intense our Lord's suffering was in chapter 22. And here appeared to him an angel in heaven, strengthening him. 
And being in an agony, he prayed the longer, and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Now, this is hematidrosis, or sometimes people call it hematohydrosis. It's a very rare medical condition that actually causes blood to ooze out of your body through your sweat glands. That happens when you're not cut, when you're not injured. Doctors don't really know what causes it, but there's a general consensus forming around the idea that it has to do with extreme distress, the extreme fight or flight response. Tiny blood vessels in the skin break open, the blood inside of those vessels flows out and is squeezed out through the sweat glands. That's intense, totally bodily experienced distress. And it's happened in a lot of documented cases. Now, it's not a very common disorder, but over the centuries, there's been lots of documentation and this is interesting stuff to read. Our Lord was also sad. He wept over Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. Our Lady, also conceived without sin, was anxious, searching for the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. It says she's anxious. So these kinds of spiritual readings or these quotes fail to understand the human person and fail to understand human formation. Again, the Catechism on Emotions, right? Paragraph 1763, the term passions belongs to the Christian patrimony. Feelings or passions are emotions or movements of the sensitive appetite that incline us to act or not to act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. Paragraph 1764, the passions are natural components of the human psyche. They form the passageway and ensure the connection between the life of the senses and the life of the mind. Our Lord called man's heart the source from which all passions spring. Anxiety and sadness, they're emotions. Emotions don't carry a moral weight in and of themselves. And the, the catechism bears this out in 1767. In themselves, passions are neither good nor evil. They are morally qualified only to the extent that they effectively engage reason and will. Now, I argue that passions are strong. Emotions are strong between husbands and wives. There's no one that can activate us quite like our spouse can activate us. And we may have parts of us that hate other parts of us. Our spouse may have parts of her or him that hate other parts of her or him. And I'm also going to argue that many Catholics have parts that hate their spouses. And I mean hate as an emotion. It can be really threatening to think that my spouse hates me. It can be a lot easier to bear, a lot easier to accept, and actually a lot more accurate to say that Part of my spouse hates me. When she's in a particular mode, she hates me. That's much easier to take in, to accept about our spouse. It's much less likely that we're going to deny or avoid that kind of a presentation. That's different than hatred as a position, right? Just before we were talking about hatred as an emotion, that comes up spontaneously. That's, you know, that's a part of us. It's yes, it's, it's within us, but it's not hardened into a position. Some people have hardened positions of hatred toward their spouses. That's different because it involves the will, right? That hatred is being nurtured. It's being fed. It's being harbored within our hearts. So we don't want that. But it's also a bad idea not to accept the reality that there may be parts of our spouse that hate us. That that we should not ignore, that we should not deny. Because 
that's real. We don't want to wind up denying reality. And the same thing can happen with desires or impulses or attitudes or intentions or thoughts, right? We were talking about emotions that parts have, but they have these other things too. If we just attempt to suppress or repress or deny this stuff within us or to, to deny that it happens in our spouse, we're going to get what's called the revenge of the repressed. And there's going to be battling going on within us because some parts are not going to want to deny those realities. They can lead to a battle royale within. The other thing, though, is that when we're that internally conflicted, when we can't accept what's going on inside of us and we can't accept what's going on inside our spouse, if our parts can't get on board, if they don't feel safe enough to tolerate that awareness, we're going to wind up being fragmented. And this whole podcast is about interior integration. That is really backed up in the Catechism again, 1643, talking about married love. Conjugal love involves a totality in which all the elements of the person enter, the appeal of the body and instinct, the power of feeling and affectivity, the aspiration of the spirit and the will. What that paragraph is saying is that all of us are supposed to come into the conjugal love, not just parts of us, but other parts aren't included because they hate the spouse. You know, look, we're supposed to bring all of this in. That paragraph goes on. It aims at a deeply personal unity, a unity that beyond union in one flesh leads to forming one heart and one soul. All right, so that means that we have to have this integration. We want this integration. It's ordained that we have this integration, not just of body, but of heart and of soul. And again, our passions are an important part of us. Catechism, paragraph 1770, moral perfection consists in man's being moved to the good, not by his will alone, but also by his sensitive appetite, as in the word of the Psalms, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And when the catechism uses that language, sensitive appetites, it's including the passions. Remember, the passions are part of our sensitive appetites. We're supposed to be harmonious inside, integrated inside in loving the Lord, that's the great commandment, and in loving our spouse as our nearest neighbor, second great commandment. But we are wounded. You are gravely wounded. You're gravely wounded by original sin and its its effects. You're wounded by other sins and you're wounded by your own personal sins. I am gravely wounded. I'm gravely wounded by original sin, the sins of others, and my own personal sins. Your spouse is gravely wounded by original sin, by the sins of others, and by personal sins. You know what it brings up to me image-wise? You know the image in the movie that most captures this, the realization of how wounded we are, came from Apollo 13. Remember that movie, Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon? And it's the scene when they're in the uh, command module and they've just jettisoned the service module, right? So the service module is drifting away and it rotates and you can see how badly damaged it was. That's the reality. We are sustained in our sacramental marriages by grace. And we need to be able to recognize that it's not just a few issues. It's not just a little bit of communication problems, so forth. There are some serious issues because of our fallen human condition. All right, let's go through the signs of non-acceptance of a spouse. 
right? The first one is too much focus on the spouse, right? We're all about the spouse's actions, what the spouse did, what the spouse thinks, the spouse's emotions. There's this almost exclusive external perspective. So there's no balance between a focus on the spouse and a focus on me. That's the first one. The second is too much of a focus on the system between me and the spouse, right? Systemic problems. And that those are problems between the spouses rather than within the spouses, right? We have a communication problem. We have a compatibility problem. These are all sort of systemic problems, right? There have been some great contributions that systems theory has made to understanding dynamics between the spouses. We definitely want to look at relational dynamics, but when we start moving the locus of responsibility outside the person and into this nebulous kind of zone between the spouses where it's a systemic problem, that's against what we believe as Catholics because there isn't such a thing as a relationship sinning or a relationship making a good decision or a bad decision. The next set have to do with time, dwelling in the past, saying she never used to be this way, living in the golden years of the past, pining for the honeymoon phase or what it was like before we got married or what it was like in the first few years, right? The opposite of that is flying to the future. If I change this thing about myself or if I change this thing about my spouse or if we do marital therapy, my spouse will be so much better in the future or it will be better when we move to a real house from this little apartment or when we have our first child or when he gets a promotion and there's not so much financial distress or when the last kid gets into school and we're not always changing diapers or when the last one graduates and we're through the tumultuous teenagers at home phase or when we retire and we can just spend time together. There's this flying to the future. If there's the flying to the future or being stuck in the past, there's usually some kind of rejection of who the spouse is in the present. And usually there's some kind of rejection about who I am in the present. Fourth sign, harboring bitterness, nurturing it, feeding our grievances, remembering more situations in which the same thing kind of happened. That's harboring the, uh, the emotion. And that involves the will. The fifth is resignation versus acceptance. Resignation, when we get downhearted, when we lack any more hope for positive effects or positive change in the relationship. When there's a lot, the sixth one is a lot of certainty in how we describe our spouse. When there's no room for doubt, when there's just a certainty about who she is or about who he is. And it's, it's really interesting because a lot of times, Clients in my office will open this kind of uh, this kind of position or this kind of statement by saying, "The reality is, Doctor Peter, that my spouse dot 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 dot, right? They're telling me something with such great certainty, but it actually may not be the way that they see it." Along with that is another symptom, right? Which is broad generation, broad generalizations of the other spouse. These are generalizations that are not nuanced. They don't appreciate different dimensions of the spouse, different parts of the spouse, the dynamism of the spouse's internal system. There's just this real flat, simplistic, one-line description. Another symptom is a lack of openness to newer, deeper perspectives. There's this clinging to current assumptions. Your spouse is fearfully and wonderfully made. Your spouse is made in the image and likeness of God but we can reduce our spouses to these two-dimensional representations. She's withdrawn and she's silent. She doesn't talk. We're just like roommates. She has no emotions. We don't have a connection. Or you can get to one-dimensional representations. 
he's a narcissist. As though that captures the entirety of who the husband is. Or she's just needy and clingy and she's suffocating me. As though that's the entirety of who the wife is. This last one is a loss of a sense of providence. This is the floor, remember, under the bed. The rock-solid foundation is your childlike trust in God's providence. And like other little children, you're going to be imperfect. You're not going to do things well. You're going to make mistakes, and you're still going to be cherished and loved by God. And so is your spouse. Right? Sometimes we have this intellectual understanding of providence. We understand it in some sort of theological way. But we need to know it with more than just our brain, our mind. We need to be really engaging in that we often have parts that feel that it's safer if they are driving the bus, if they are leading us rather than trusting in God. All right. So acceptance versus endorsement in the sex life. That is among the most tricky areas in marriage. We're going to discuss much more about that next week, but that is often where everything gets focused in the most clear light. It's often the most secret part of many marriages. Let's go deeper, though. I'm going to give you some recommendations here about how do we overcome this. The first thing is to have the courage. Have courage. Have trust that your needs will be met. These deep underlying needs, these attachment needs, these integrity needs, that they're going to be met, but not necessarily by your spouse. If you believe that your needs have to be met by your spouse, then that is going to bring in a real propensity to distort realities about your spouse and about the relationship that you have with your spouse. We're going to need to also let go of of assumptions. Some of those assumptions may be really handy. They may seem really helpful. They may seem like they explain things, but they may not be true because they're filtered through our own lenses, through the perspectives of our parts through our relational histories, right? So here's three little one-line prayers that I want to offer you in in terms of bringing this into the spiritual realm. My Lord, my lady, help me to accept whatever is in my spouse as reality. That's a prayer of acceptance. What actually is, help me to understand it and to appreciate accept it as it is. Second prayer, Lord, what would you have me to see, understand, and accept in my spouse? And the third, why, Lord, are you showing me this new thing about my spouse now at this point in my life? Remember, everything that happens is providential, Romans 8, 28, right? If you're learning something about the spouse, if you've just seen the, uh, if you've just seen the service the service module, detach and see all the damage there. There's a reason you're seeing it in this moment. It's really important for you to spend time each day to consider your spouse. Think of her. Think of him. Write about her. Put things into words. Put your experiences into words. Understand how your parts are reacting to your spouse or better put to your spouse's parts because usually it's a part-to-part interaction when there's conflict. Break up the patterns, right? Try new things. See if some of these beliefs that you have about yourself might be inaccurate. And then also, I'm going to really encourage you to get a sounding board about your marriage. To discuss your marriage with another. 
uh, really respectful, but to get, if there's trouble in your marriage, to really bring in another set of eyes. Often there's this collusion that we're just going to try to work it out ourselves because we don't want to air our dirty laundry. We don't want to share things about our spouse. There can be this sort of sense of propriety about that. We'll talk more about that when we talk about the canopy around the bed, about how that can be used to hide things that we're ashamed of. Often it's so refreshing to bring in light from other people into these issues. There's this old, this old phrase that sunlight is the best disinfectant. All right, so we all need help. We all need structure. We all need support. We all are on this journey of human formation. I'm really appreciative for all of those that made it this far through the podcast, that made it this far through the episode. I am excited. The relaunch of the Resilient Catholics community is on track. We are ready to relaunch it on June 1st. From June 1st to June 30th, we're going to be accepting new members. There is so much behind this. I have spent months... I've spent the last six months actually putting together the program, and it's super exciting to me that we're in the final phases of that. I'm going to encourage you, get on the waiting list. Go to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. We have more than 100 that are on the waiting list right now. These are people that are really interested in coming together, coming together as companions, coming together in companies, coming together in cohorts to go on this pilgrimage toward human formation together. I know of nothing else out there. I have looked. I know of nothing else out there like this available in this format. On Tuesday, May 25th from 7.30 to 8.45 p.m., we will be having a Zoom meeting about the RCC reopening. We're going to answer all kinds of questions because I know a number of people are discerning about that. Much more information is going to be up on our landing page in the next week or so. That is at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. We're also going to be sending it out in our emails to the people that are on the RCC waiting list. We do have a position open. We're looking for a researcher to join us. That is a great project for a student who might need a dissertation topic. So if you're interested in doing some of our outcome research in the RCC, you can get a, you can get a hold of me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. For current RCC members, we're going to be reaching out to you on the second Wednesday Zoom meeting this month on May 12th from 7.30 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to be talking about all the changes that are happening in the community. You are going to find out about all of these things. We're going to be explaining to them, and you actually are going to be able to experience some of them in the month of May before new members start coming in in June. There's also conversation hours that I hold on my phone. Those are Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be doing those all throughout the month of May. Tuesdays and Thursdays, 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 317-567-9594. I will be by my phone. You're welcome to call me and ask questions. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. For those of you that are in the RCC community, we have an experiential exercise about finding out what we're not accepting in ourselves and what we're not accepting in our spouses. For those of you in the interior therapist community, we have a bonus podcast on acceptance of clients' spouses. It is so good to be with you. Thank you. And I particularly appreciate the prayers. So many of you have let me know that you're praying for me. This whole endeavor runs on prayer. On December 20th of last year, 2020, I really had what I felt to be a message to get smaller 
to get more humble, to get more childlike, to trust more, to have more confidence in God, to have more confidence in Our Lady. That's what I felt like our Lord was telling me. And I appreciate the support to do in doing that because it hasn't been easy for me. So keep praying for me. I pray for you. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.